You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. Augustine's War Against Earthly Pride by Ben Baer. I'd like to start today by asking you to compare two cultural artifacts. The first of these is from the year 431 BCE. It is from Pericles, the great Athenian statesman. And he's speaking on the occasion of a funeral ceremony after the first year of the Peloponnesian War between Sparta and Athens. Among the many remarkable things about this speech is the fact that Pericles doesn't spend a lot of time dwelling on uh, lamentations for the dead of the war. Most of the speech concerns what's so great about Athens. He praises the virtues of the Athenian people. He praises the laws of Athens for how they afford equal justice to all. He praises the magnitude of our city and how it draws the produce of the world into our harbor. He praises the fact that Athens is the school of Hellas, the the center of learning in Greece. Such is the Athens, he says, for which these men, in the assertion of their resolve not to lose her, nobly fought and died. It's a speech that's filled with characteristically Greek pride, even amidst the mourning for the dead of the Peloponnesian War. So that's exhibit A. I'd like to now fast forward 800 years to exhibit B. And in this case, we have another speaker who is addressing his fellow countrymen on the occasion of another foreign invasion. Uh, This time, it's the sack of Rome, just a few years earlier in 410, in which King Alaric of the Visigoths uh, laid siege to, uh, pillaged and plundered Rome. Uh, The first time this had happened in 800 years. And there are many Romans in this period who are blaming Christianity for the sack of Rome. Uh, Rome had recently begun to abandon its ancient gods, and their idea is that uh, the city has lost the protection of the gods. And this author wants to defend against that charge, but in a rather curious way, you'll see he still doesn't want to let Christians off the hook. Let's see why. He says, let the Christians reflect humbly upon those very sins by reason of which God in his anger has filled the world with such great calamities. Is there anyone, and he means anyone among us, who treats as they should be treated those very persons on account of whose horrible pride, luxury, avarice, and execrable wickedness and impiety, God God now smites the earth. not simply blaming the pagan Romans for their pride, for thinking that Rome is the eternal city, uh, and that's why it has now suffered this horrendous blow. He's, He's also blaming his fellow Christians, basically for being too lenient against those awful, sinful pagans. It's very characteristic of him. He, of course, is St. Augustine, Bishop of Hippo in North Africa, uh, the subject of our talk. 
And as I think you can see from what I just read to you from Augustine, he inhabits a totally different intellectual universe than someone like Pericles. In the space of 800 years, there has been a cultural revolution uh, in the Mediterranean world. Uh, you might think a cultural devolution. Whereas Pericles had defiantly praised the virtues of Athens, even in the midst of death and destruction, someone like Augustine takes the opportunity of a loss like that to lament the wickedness of his fellow countrymen, even his fellow Christians, uh, and to try to inculcate guilt. What you see happening in this period of time is basically the idea of pride going from being what it was in the ancient world, which was the crown of the virtues, to the deadliest of the deadly sins. And the question that we're going to talk about today and try to grapple with and try to answer is, how did this happen? How, how did this happen, this dramatic transformation, and, and why? I think it's an important question to try to grapple with. Uh, for one thing, if we're interested in trying to understand how is it that we live in the world we live in today, in which the morality of self-sacrifice and altruism is dominant, we need to go back to look to where this came from. And the, the process by which the virtue of pride becomes replaced by the virtue of humility, which is really a, a, a concrete, searing form of sacrifice, that's a place to look. Personally, I've gotten interested in looking at this because I'm working on a research project understanding the religious roots of altruism. And to do that, I have to look at the historical roots of altruism in religion, someone like St. Augustine's the right place to look. So it's an important question, but it's also a difficult question. It's difficult because over the course of this 800 years, there's a lot that happens. There's a, it's a dramatic philosophic shift, but it involves all kinds of different players. If you really wanted to understand the full philosophic story here, you would need to study and understand the role of Plato, of the Stoics, of the Neoplatonists, Jesus Christ, you'd have to understand him too, and, and a number of his followers. Uh, we can't do all of that in just one talk. What I think we can do is try to study the question in microcosm, find a representative sample of the transitional period that we're talking about. And I think St. Augustine is an excellent way to do that. He's, first of all, he's living in a crucial transitional period. He's living in late antiquity. This is the tail, the tail end of the Roman Empire. In just a few more decades, uh, 476, the empire would officially collapse. So he's, he's there at the very end of it, and Rome is symbolic of the old classical values in many ways. Uh, he's also obviously a leading theologian and philosopher uh, who's responsible for pushing the ideas uh, that are having this effect on the world. Uh, it's considered to be one of the four doctors of the church. Uh, the passage that I read to you earlier uh, was taken from his great work, his magnum opus, City of God. And although, of course, he didn't invent Christianity, 
in books like City of God, he is instrumental in defining some of the core doctrines of that viewpoint. He even announces at one point in the preface that even though this book is going to concern many things, and it talks about uh, philosophy and theology and uh, history and biblical interpretation, he says, I know what efforts are needed to persuade the proud how great is that virtue of humility, which not by dint of any human loftiness, but by divine grace bestowed from on high, raises us above all the earthly pinnacles which sway in this inconstant age. I think part of the reason, part of the reason why he says he knows what it takes to persuade the proud to be humble is that it's, uh, it's something he himself was persuaded of. He himself was a convert from pagan thinking to Christian thinking. So there's a number of ways here in which he himself straddles this divide between the old pagan world in which pride is a virtue and the new Christian world in which it's a sin. So my agenda for today, uh, we're going to look into how it was the West began to change its mind about morality, about the virtue of pride. To do that, I want to start by getting oriented a bit, getting ourselves a benchmark, trying to understand just what this virtue of pride was in the pagan world. What was the essence of it? Not necessarily what Augustine says it is, but what it really is that he's attacking. And then we're going to look at the variety of tools and ways and angles of attack that he took against pride. We're going to look at the rhetoric that he uses against it. We're obviously and importantly going to look at some of the core philosophic doctrines that he invokes against it. And last but not least, and this relates to some of the things that happened and were discussed in Ankar's talk earlier today. Yeah, we're going to talk about some of the psychology that I think might have been involved, indeed, in some way had to have been involved in adopting ideas that would rationalize positions like the ones he's going to hold. Okay. But first, let's talk about, let's, let's get that benchmark. What is this pride that he's attacking? And to get a sense of that, I think it's helpful to do a brief review of Aristotle's take on pride. Now, Aristotle didn't invent pride, but he did offer an explicit account of what the virtue is and why he thought it was so great. And part of the reason that I want to bring Aristotle into this is because in, in talking about Augustine's attack on pride, part of what we need to think about is how is he responding to Aristotle or how would he have responded to Aristotle's case? Because Aristotle makes a brilliant defense of pride. And if, uh, and, and if, if part of what we're wondering is how did Augustine succeed, how did he succeed against these uh, brilliant points of Aristotle. So I'll start first by just giving you one piece of terminology. It's the one that Nikos mentioned at the top. It's, it's the word that Aristotle uses uh, that we sometimes translate as pride, and that's megalopsychia in, grace, in, in Greek. And it literally translated, that means greatness of soul. Uh, not all of our translators translate this as pride. Sometimes they translate it as magnanimity, which is really just based on a direct translation into Latin. 
some of them do say pride, and that's, I think, a good thing. But the word matters, and we'll see why shortly. What is pride, according to Aristotle? Well, here's a canonical statement of it, taken from the Nicomachean Ethics. The man, the man is thought to be proud who thinks himself worthy of great things, being worthy of them. So it's, you've got to have two things. You've got to actually be good, and then you've got to think yourself worthy of that honor. So just simple example, if you're Achilles, and you are very courageous, and you recognize that you're courageous, you, you, you recognize you're worthy of honor of being regarded as courageous, that makes you a man of megalopsychia. If you're Socrates, and you are actually wise, you're not just pretending to be wise, but you have real wisdom, and on some level you know that, that makes you proud. So there's a connection between the virtue and the, the knowledge of that virtue, the recognition of that virtue. That's as opposed to vi certain vices that are related to the same topic. One vice that Aristotle contrasts with pride is what you might call vanity or conceit. That's somebody who, let's say, thinks they're great, if they think they're courageous, they think they're wise, but actually, they're not. This is what the Christians later will basically identify with pride, and that's their major fault. But what's especially interesting for appearing as a vice on Aristotle's list is humility. Humility is a vice, according to Aristotle. And that's the, that's the state in which, let's say, you really do have some something that's honorable. Let's say you really are courageous, or you really are wise, but you don't want to recognize it. And one of the things that makes Aristotle so distinctively Greek here is not only does he regard that as a vice, but of the two vices, of the two possible mistakes here, the two possible ways for there to be a disconnect between your virtue and your recognition of it, he thinks humility's worse. If you're gonna make a mistake, you might as well be vain. Humility's commoner and worse, says Aristotle. And, I mean, there's no Greek pagan philosopher in this period who regards humility as a virtue. Now, I mean, not even Plato. And, and Plato's the, you know, disagrees with Aristotle on a lot of things. There's perhaps ways in which he has more affinities to the Christians. We'll talk about those soon. But he doesn't think humility's a virtue. Okay, so what's so great about pride? In a nutshell, pride is great, according to Aristotle, because virtue is great. The concern of pride is how you think about honors, how you think about praise. And, well, what's the thing that's most worthy of praise? What's the thing that's most worthy of honor, according to Aristotle? Virtue, virtues like courage, wisdom, temperance, justice. And the proud man is someone who cares about honor, but only to the extent that it is earned, only to the extent that it's honor for your virtues. The proud man doesn't care so much about uh, being honored for his wealth or for how well-born he is. What he cares about is, am I being honored for what's actually really good about me? 
And this is the reason why Aristotle thought that pride is the crown of the virtues. What he means by that is you can't have pride without those virtues because it's, it's honoring yourself for your virtues. He also thinks it, pride makes the virtues better. I mean, it's a virtue itself. It's a good thing to have a virtue like courage or wisdom. It's even better to know that you have it because knowledge is generally good. The last thing I'll say, just to set us up on the topic of what pride is and why it's so important, is to note some of the affinities between Aristotle's account of pride and Ayn Rand's concept of self-esteem. They're, they're closely related almost, they're very closely related. So uh, Ayn Rand thought that self-esteem is the conviction that you are able to live and worthy of living. She does herself have a virtue of pride. Now, of course, for her, virtues are the actions that you undertake in order to get values like self-esteem. Virtue of pride is the mental action of striving for moral perfection in order to get the value of self-esteem. So it's not quite the same as Aristotle's idea of pride. Uh, for Aristotle, pride is basically the character state of having already achieved self-esteem. So that's, that's how closely related they are. And the reason that's important to note is because I mean, you should keep this in mind when you're thinking about the attacks you're about to hear on pride, because that's really what they're attacking. Augustine and his ilk are, are really attacking human self-esteem. And yet we, we really desperately need self-esteem if we're, if we're to live successfully. We need to be motivated by thinking that we're actually good, if in fact we're good. So keep that in mind in spite of the rhetoric, because some of the rhetoric that you'll hear is designed to deceive. It's designed to confuse. The rhetoric that Augustine uses against pride. Now, he's, he's trained as a rhetorician. He's trained to argue before, before he decided to become a bishop, he, he was trained to go before law courts and use his words to, con to change people's minds through fair means and foul. And you'll see he's got some of these foul means up his sleeve. Uh, just think of the, one of the first passages I read to you where he says that it was the... Uh, it was the horrible pride, luxury, avarice, and wickedness of the Romans that was responsible for the sack of Rome. Well, you know, there might be some, some vices that were responsible for that, but is pride among them? Do you recognize anything like Aristotle's idea of megalopsychia in the person of the Roman tyrants and corrupt emperors? That's not what Aristotle was talking about. But here it's important that in the period of late antiquity, third and fourth century, Aristotle's influence is really just waning. It's, it's fading. Philosophers still know about Aristotle, but to the extent that they talk about him anymore, they tend to run him together with Plato. After all, he was a student of Plato. They think he's just a kind of variation on a Platonic theme. They don't know about the major differences between these two philosophers. His ethics, in particular, seems to be particularly unheard of, uninfluential. Augustine shows no evidence of, of knowing much of anything about Aristotle's ethics. We know he read some of his logic, but 
Uh, the fact that Aristotle regards pride as a virtue and offers arguments for it makes no appearance whatsoever in any of his major texts attacking pride. Augustine also didn't read Greek very well, so that's maybe part of the reason. And it really shows, the absence of the influence of Aristotle really shows here when you look at the language that Augustine uses to attack pride. Uh, he doesn't even use the direct translation into Latin of megalopsychia, which would be magnimitas. What he uses instead is the term superbia, and that's what he pairs off against humility. And then he, he, he argues that these are the only two alternatives you basically you've got to pick. Uh, conveniently, this way, he never has to say, greatness of soul is a bad thing. That would, that would sound strange. Uh, sometimes they'll say, no, if you really want a great soul, you've got to have humility. But for the most part, the, the idea of megalopsychia or magnanimity just goes missing in action. And when the word goes missing in action, the, the theory that Aristotle had attached to it also does as well. And this alternative theory becomes much easier to defend. Uh, humility ends up looking good when you compare it to the examples, the first major examples in City of God that Augustine gives of superbia when he talks about lust of mastery. This is what the, this is what the emperors and the tyrants practiced going all the way back to Romulus and Remus at the founding of the Roman Empire. Emperor, the Roman Empire. Romulus kills Remus so he can become uh, king of Rome, exercising this prideful lust of mastery. Or various delusions of grandeur, the idolatry of the Roman religion, worshiping these, these false pagan gods. Augustine thinks it's pride on multiple levels. He doesn't think they're real gods. Uh, he thinks they're demons pretending to be gods and men who are fooling themselves in doing that. Uh, ask me if you're interested about Augustine's obsession with demons. It's, it's, it's quite interesting. Uh, and one last example of what he regards as paradigmatic superbia is abdication of responsibility. Never wanting to blame anything on yourself. Always trying to blame somebody else. That's what he thinks the Romans are doing when they try to blame the Christians for the sack of Rome. And it's what Eve did in the garden when she blames the serpent for her sin. We'll come back uh, to Adam and Eve. They, they play an important role. But I mean, obviously, these are, not the example, these are not examples of what Aristotle would regard as the virtue of pride. What's especially revealing, though, is the next set of very different examples that Augustine tries to take down along with these by a very crude package deal. And here you can really start to see him making an open assault on what the real essence of pride is, even though he doesn't name it. One of the things he regards as prideful sin is the pursuit of worldly wisdom. In a place like the Confessions, he sometimes calls this lust of the eyes. You've heard of good old-fashioned lust of the flesh. Well, lust of the eyes is when you pridefully become so concerned with learning more things about the world around you, which is terrible because why? Well, here's, here's an explanation he gives at one point in the Confessions. In their impious pride, they, the scientists, draw away from you 
Lord God, and lose your light because these scholars who foresee a future eclipse of the sun long beforehand fail to see their own in the present. You see, he has a way with words here. You see what he's doing there? He's saying they've predicted the eclipse of the sun. They have forgotten to predict their own eclipse, that is, their own mortality, because they've forgotten that they're mortal. They think that they're like gods, and that's their prideful sin. It's not just the scientists. Here's where I think it starts to get particularly interesting. The philosophers, the pagan philosophers, are prideful sinners. And, and that's, I think, interesting because should be a little surprising. Like, don't you think when you think of philosophers, you think of people who are, you know, in uh, togas going up into ivory towers to just contemplate the truth for its own sake in a kind of ascetic way. They don't sound like proud guys. They sound, if anything, like humble. They're, but nonetheless, Augustine regards them as prideful. And that's especially when he considers the the ethics, of the, the ethics of the pagan philosophers. With wondrous vanity, these philosophers have wished to be happy here and now and to achieve blessedness in their own efforts. That's the pride of the philosophers. And he goes through all kinds of different pagan philosophers who he thinks does this. You can understand why he might think this, for instance, of the Epicureans. They think that happiness consists in finding pleasure in this life. And so if they think they can get it on their own, then they're being prideful. Somewhat more surprising is the fact that he also thinks the Stoics are prideful. Now, go to my colleague Aaron Smith's talk on the Stoics later this week, where he'll say more about this. But if you know anything about the Stoics, they're the ones who have the conception, in effect, that that virtue is its own reward. Just being virtuous is its own form of happiness. You don't have to actually achieve any values. In fact, if you try to achieve values, that's dangerous because you're becoming too attached to things in the world and we should detach ourselves from things in the world. And that, it's a, it's a wacky conception of virtue, not a very worldly conception of virtue. And yet from Augustine's perspective, it's much too worldly because well, the Stoics still think, even though it's a strange view of virtue, that they can achieve it on their own. They can achieve their own uh, virtue as its own reward through their own philosophical exercises. And if you find it surprising that the Stoics are proud, according to Augustine, what's especially revealing, I think, and I'm going to come back to this a couple more times today, is his attitude toward the Platonists. Uh, the Platonic philosophers, if you know anything about the, the duel between Plato and Aristotle down through the centuries, you know that it's the Platonic philosophers who come down on the side of there's a supernatural dimension beyond the sensible world. And as, you know, as opposed to the Aristotelians who think, no, there's just the natural world. And the soul is higher than the body and separate from it and immortal. And philosophy, according to the Platonists, is really all about just preparing the soul for death. The Christianity basically comes down on the side of the Platonists on all of these important questions. 
Augustine even credits reading the Neoplatonists, like Plotinus, with helping to move him toward Christianity. He thinks the Platonists discovered some of these important truths before the Christians did. And yet, he still thinks they're proud and sinful. Why? Well, there's a lot to say here, but I'll just pick one representative point, and we'll come back to this later today. I mentioned the part about how the Platonists think that the soul is higher than the body, uh, that, it can, that it can be immortal, it is immortal, and, and the goal is to reach the afterlife. Well, the way the Platonists think this happens is, uh, if you're a philosopher, you're able to train yourself in a way that your soul becomes ready to, you know, for transition to the, to the next world. And when you die, your soul completely separates from your body, leaving that mortal coil behind, leaving you then free to explore the bounds of the, the realm of the forms. And that's then ultimate happiness, according to Plato. And that's their pride. Their pride is that they think they can, on their own, achieve that blissful separation that they think that separation is even possible, or that it's necessary, because if it's necessary, it's because the body is wicked and bad. And as it turns out, Augustine also thinks the body is corrupt, but not naturally so, because that would mean God is the one who made it bad, and that would be vain to try to blame God for something. I still owe you an explanation for how he thinks the body can be corrupt without blaming God, We'll come back to that later. The point is that the Platonists are proud in thinking they can achieve that separation on their own. A revealing literary symbol of the pride that Augustine is attacking is his treatment of the Bible story of Adam and Eve. This was the first sin. And what was the first sin? It wasn't just eating a tasty piece of fruit. It wasn't just lust for the, the wonderful taste on your taste buds. God had commanded Adam and Eve not to eat of that tree because it was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve wanted to know something about good and evil. They wanted to know it for themselves. They wanted to be like gods, and in doing so, disobey the order they had been given. That's the first sin. That's the origin of all sin. That's why, for Augustine, pride is the foundation of all sin. Not even lust is the foundation of all sin. It's your, our use of the human mind to try to know something. That's why we're punished. One last example of Augustine's really just open assault on the essence of pride. And you get it, the meaning becomes even clearer if you look now what he holds up as the alternative, the, the virtue of humility. Consider what he says about the story of Abraham in, in the Old Testament. Abraham is the opposite of Adam and Eve. He's the one who is given an order by God and follows it unquestioningly. 
And the order, and that's even though the order is slaughter your only begotten son, Isaac. Of course, God changes his mind at the last minute. He was just testing him. But you pass the test, Abraham. You have faith. You have humility. You have humility because you have submitted yourself to the will of God. Uh, there's, there's a passage in uh, City of God where Augustine puts very explicitly the meaning of this kind of submission. Just to give you a brief context, he's, he's talking about why he uh, rejects the idea that God requires animal sacrifices, like the kind the Hebrews had, like the kinds presumably that the Romans did for their gods. And here's what he says uh, in the course of explaining himself. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart the Lord will not despise. He's taking that from Psalms. He does not then desire the sacrifice of a slaughtered beast, but he does desire the sacrifice of a contrite heart, humble with the sorrow of penitence. That's the kind of humility that he advocates. Later in the same section of City of God, he says one of the things this means is God doesn't just want sacrifice of your body. He wants sacrifice of your soul. That's that broken spirit. Ask me more later about some of the things he says here about that, that really bring the anti-individualism of his position uh, to the forefront. But what all of this adds up to is that for Augustine, what he's attacking, the pride that he's attacking, I think is, is exactly the essence of pagan pride that we were talking about before, as you see in Aristotle. He's openly attacking the pride that we take in the human mind, in independent judgment, and therefore in our self-esteem. And something that's really important to point out here is that this is a whole new kind of evil. In, in on grand scale, at least, in human history. Say what you want about Plato and the Platonists, and they got a lot wrong and they had a lot of irrationalities, but the Platonists still valued philosophy because it was about trying to answer questions for yourself, and they valued getting at the truth on their own, and some strange truths that they think they got to, but, uh, that's what the Platonists thought. Augustine's response to this is, in effect, shut up and don't ask so many questions. So what made this possible? What made this brazen attack on human self-esteem possible? Next thing to look at is the philosophy that Augustine used to try to rationalize this attack. And here's where I want to bring Aristotle back into the equation, because it's worth thinking about how would Augustine answer the case that Aristotle gave. He didn't answer it. He didn't talk about it. He tried to memory hole it, which was very convenient. But let's suppose that he had actually explicitly encountered it. Aristotle, of course, would have said, the philosophers that you're talking about aren't vain or conceited. Plato, he's my teacher. I disagree with him on a great many things, but he had tremendous intellectual achievements. 
he more or less invented philosophy by asking these systematic questions and showing their interconnections for the first time. Uh, he had real knowledge that he had achieved, and if he, if he recognized that about himself, he had a right to be proud. Aristotle, of course, thinks that the rational mind has the power to know, and that therefore you have the power to achieve a virtuous character. How would Augustine answer these ideas? Basically, Augustine is going to say no on all counts. Uh, they may think that they can get some knowledge. They may think that they can achieve this virtue. They're just wrong. They can't do it, not on their own, not through their unaided intellect. They require the aid of you-know-who, the big guy upstairs. At one point in City of God, Augustine says, philosophers, the pagan philosophers who, who like Plato, live according to falsehood because man was created righteous to live according to his maker's will and not his own. Falsehood consists in not living in the way, in the way for which he was created. Whatever truths these philosophers think they've discovered, they're not really truths if they involve abdicating their responsibility to obey God's will. God is truth. God is the ultimate standard and source of truth. And Christianity has some deep philosophical resources for making this case, or at least for rationalizing this case. Ultimately, that's what it is. These are evil philosophies that are systems of rationalization, to quote that line that Ankar discussed earlier. I'm going to talk about just two, two major philosophic doctrines that Augustine drew on to try to rationalize this case that said, even the philosophers are conceited in vain. The first, and we talked about this a little already, the idea that the body is a source of corruption. It's a source of corruption for your knowledge. You can't achieve knowledge because you're stuck in a lowly body, and you can't achieve virtue. Why for both? Well, especially if we're talking about the kind of knowledge the scientists are going after, where they're looking at the world with their senses, well, remember that our senses are physical. And if the body is a source of corruption, then so are the senses. Augustine says that if we're just sticking to the data of our senses, we're going to be confused. Philosophers and scientists are going to all disagree with each other. He notes there is a lot of disagreement in the Asian world about scientific philosophic questions. That's why he thinks it's so. Same thing for virtue. We talked about lust of the eyes, but there's still good old-fashioned lust of the flesh. And uh, that encourages temptation, sin. It distracts you from, alienates you from God. Heck, the whole of the Confessions is, is a story of Augustine's battle with lust, mostly of the flesh. You know, God make me chaste, but not yet, is his, is his famous line. So as long as you're living in this mortal, physical body, the source of corruption, you're not going to be able to achieve any of these values. No knowledge, no salvation. And you might be thinking, right, at this point, so far, doesn't this sound just like Plato? Plato's the one that says that there's a, this big dualism between mind and body, that the body is corrupt. That's why you need to escape it in the afterlife. And there's a lot of similarities, and we already talked about the influence. But the way in which Augustine differs with Plato about the nature of bodily corruption is incredibly interesting and revealing. 
Because Augustine insists, yes, the body is corrupt, but it is not naturally corrupt for the reason we mentioned before. The body was made by God. All good things, all things that God does are good. If we said the body was corrupt by its nature, that would be saying God made something bad, and that, that would be to impugn him. That would be more pride. Okay, so then if the body is corrupt, how come? How did it get that way if it wasn't God? Can anybody guess the reason? Human sin. It's all our fault. And remember what that original sin was for Augustine. It's not the lust, because, well, we're now talking about where the lust come from. It's that disobedience. It's that sin of the mind that is the source of our physical corruption. The lust we suffer, all these other forms of physical, physical corruption, these are just our punishment for the mind's sin. An interesting symbol here is Augustine has this view that if we hadn't disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, if we had obeyed him and not eaten of the fruit, the body would never have become corrupt. It didn't have to. How would it look like then? Well, we wouldn't suffer lust. And you ask Augustine, okay, so if we didn't have lust, would we never have sex? How would we reproduce? He has answers to all of these questions. Uh, he thinks that if we hadn't sinned, we wouldn't have lust, but our body, we'd still need to reproduce, we'd still need to have sex. Here's the solution. Our sexual organs would be aroused voluntarily. Like, I decide to lift up my arm. Today's the day I decide to reproduce. Well, I'll just lift up my organs, put them back down when they're not needed. You really get the sense uh, that he struggled with not being able to control them. And it's, it's this... It's this massive and bizarre form of rewriting reality, if only reality were other than it, than it actually is, elevating the I wish above and it is. But at the end of the day, he blames the mind, the mind for that disobedience. We need God to get us out of this predicament. We need God to purify our corrupted bodies if we are to be saved. And this is part of the reason why he objects to the Platonists so much. They think there's a separation of mind and body completely. Augustine and Christianity think, no, they're never completely separated. The body is resurrected with the soul in the last judgment and uh, purified, if you're saved, sent to the eternal hellfire to burn along with your soul uh, if you're not. Ask me more about why the Platonists object to that whole picture because they thought it was ridiculous, as of course it is. Second major philosophic doctrine. And this is, we've already been touching on this, but it's the idea that we depend on God's grace for everything, everything that's valuable in any way. Uh, we've talked about how the corruption of our body is not natural, how it's a result of our sin made by God. What we need God for is to save us from that corruption. We need him to save us from the effects, the results of our original sin. He thinks we need grace for all kinds of things. We need it for knowledge, first of all. God gave us our minds. Some people glory in the achievements 
of their science, of their philosophy. Augustine says, don't glory in that. You didn't build your own mind. God gave it to you. It's like an early religious version of egalitarianism. Ask me if you're interested about John Rawls's uh, connection to Augustine. But it's not just the capacity that we have, that we, that we owe to God. Augustine thinks that every time we use that capacity, we depend on God too. And here's, here's a, a very interesting passage from City of God where he makes this clear. He says, the mind itself is made by its dark and inveterate faults. It is by its dark and inveterate faults made unable to bear his immutable light until it has been renewed from day to day, until it is imbued with faith and so purified. This is Augustine's theory of so-called divine illumination. It's his divine illumination theory of knowledge. He thinks that for any rational knowledge we have above the senses, any kind of timeless truth, including presumably truths about ethics, not only does God have to give us our mind, he has to activate that knowledge in our mind through his divine illumination. He has to shine the light on the true propositions. That's what we experience when we get that aha moment, when suddenly we understand something. That's God intervening directly in our mind to show us what's true. And it's not the work that we've done that gives us that understanding. It's, it's being lucky enough to be the recipient of his whim that day to let us actually know. Uh, it's useful here to compare this to Plato. Plato also had a kind of passive view of knowledge. He thought, as long as you do the right philosophic exercises, the light just shines in. But there's still that formula. You follow the formula, you do the exercises, you get the knowledge. For Augustine, it's really just a luck, the luck of the draw. It's whether you happen to be the, the lucky beneficiary of God's grace. The same, of course, applies to virtue and to salvation. He basically just defines happiness as knowing God, as, as being united with God in the afterlife. And we've already talked about how God's needed to save you uh, from corruption. He, all good things come from God. All bad things come from human beings, from our sin. That's the doctrine of original sin. That's Augustine's major contribution uh, to Christianity, the formulation of that doctrine. He says, each man, because he derives his origin from a condemned stock, is at first necessarily evil and fleshly, because he comes from Adam. But if being reborn he advances in Christ, he will afterwards be good and spiritual. So we depend on God's grace for our happiness, for our salvation, to save us from original sin. I think the last plant I'll give you is ask me about where this doctrine of original sin came from and how it came from his opposition to a, a heresy called Pelagianism. In the course of answering, he, he makes abundantly clear his, his, his true opposition to free will. So if all of this is true, you just you can't do anything on your own. You can't get knowledge on your own. You can't get virtue. You can't get happiness. You can't get salvation. It all depends on God. That means that these philosophers who think that they can get any of these things on their own through their own unaided intellect 
are wrong, they're conceited, they're vain, they're prideful, and therefore they're sinners. And it's easy to say all of that if you just assert the dogma that God exists and has all these powers and that we can't do anything without him. It's easy to say that. It's harder to maintain it seriously when, as a grown adult, by the time you're of philosophical writing age, you've doubtless experienced all kinds of evidence of your own personal efficacy. And so it would have to be pretty difficult to maintain this evasion that you, you really couldn't do any of this on your own. And that leads us to our last topic, which is what could motivate someone to hang on for dear life to these dogmas and these rationalizations in the face of all the evidence they are likely to have. And this is where we enter into the territory that was, uh, I think, broached by Ankar's talk today. Ankar talked about Ayn Rand's essay, Philosophical Detection, where she talks about uh, evil philosophies as systems of rationalization. She also says, rationalization is a cover-up, a process of providing one's emotions with a false identity, of giving them spurious explanations and justifications in order to hide one's motives, not just from others, but primarily from oneself. And it's worth thinking about what kinds of psychological motives it could take to prompt someone like Augustine to embrace these theories in order to evade so much that he must know. The one thing I think we can be certain about is whatever it was, whatever these motives were, they sure couldn't have been good. Uh, there's, there's no honest revolt against reason, is, is the line that Galt uses later in his speech. Now, what were the specific motives that prompted Augustine to embrace his revolt against, against reason? I don't think we're going to be able to know for certain. But I do think that we can offer, at the very least, a plausible hypothesis on the basis of evidence. And that's why this is not psychologizing. Where do we get this evidence? Well, unlike most other philosophers, we have an abundance of it from the fact that Augustine wrote his own autobiography, The Confessions. And it's to that that I will now turn. I want to share with you four basic facts about Augustine's life that should get us thinking, at least, about what might have motivated his revolt against reason. First big fact about Augustine, he was smart. There's no question about this. Uh, his parents recognized it at an early age. They started pushing him into school to train as a rhetorician so he could profit from his intelligence. You get a sense of just how smart he is from reading his books. I mean, in the Confessions, he details the struggle he has over Christian belief. He doubts it for so many years because he sees so many problems with it. He sees all the contradictions in Christianity and in the idea of a god. And of course, he considers himself to be prideful 
for occupying himself with all these questions, but he's asking all the right questions. When you get, by the time, to the end of his life, he writes City of God. I mentioned the book does everything. It has this extensive section just of biblical commentary. He goes through the entire Bible, and he points out all the contradictions in the Bible, like way more than I ever noticed. Of course, he tries to rationalize them. He tries to explain them away. He tries to say they're not really contradictions. And his explanations are ridiculous. But he sees the problems. He's a smart guy. That's important to remember. So this is not the case of a dolt who is just sort of fooled into believing this stuff. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's dealing with. Second fact about Augustine's life. From an early age, he has some real definite values, personal values of his own, which are quashed by authority figures. His parents push him very early into rhetoric. He doesn't really want to do it. Uh, when he goes to school, he's beaten severely by tutors and, and teachers when he doesn't want to study. He tells us, I much preferred to read Latin pagan literature, much preferred it over reading the Bible. Uh, he, of course, when writing this, considers it pride that he had that preference, but it was his preference. He enjoys sex. He's probably in love with his concubine of many years, uh, but his mother wants him to convert to Christianity and marry a nice Christian girl. This is his mother right here, Saint Monica, Santa Monica. Uh, she is a looming figure in his life, and you can see her all over, all over the autobiography. She's a saint because she's considered blessed for having pushed Augustine to convert so much. And boy, does she ever push. I mean, she's, if, she would be a helicopter mother, a helicopter parent, except like if the helicopter were black ops, extra super military help. <laughs> She makes Mrs. Keating in The Fountainhead look like an anti-authoritarian. <laughs> so we'll, we'll come back to her. But you've got all these authority figures pushing Augustine to, to abandon his values. Third important fact about Augustine's life. When these authority figures push him to abandon these values, he characteristically gives in way too easily. There's a famous story from the Confessions, for instance, uh, where he's with a bunch of friends, and they're out and about carousing, and they decide, let's steal some pears uh, from the neighbor's lawn. And they don't need the pears. They're not starving. They don't even like the pears. They're not very good. They're just going to steal them for the fun of it. And although he doesn't think this is what's significant about the story, Augustine mentions, I wouldn't have done it if my friends weren't there. I wouldn't have done it if I weren't trying to get along. And the question that he never goes on to ask about himself is, could that possibly be the reason why I also give in to all these other things that people push me into later in life? So, for instance, at one point, he becomes frustrated by his smothering mother and decides to escape from North Africa to Italy. He tries to go you know, find himself. Uh, but she leaves Africa. She sails across the sea to come find him uh, because she still wants to get him to convert. She still wants him to marry a Christian girl. So she gets, she finds him. She shows up. She sends the concubine away. He's 
brokenhearted. Uh, and so she sets up a, a new marriage with a nice Christian girl who's underage, and therefore they can't have sex for many years. And, and he's distraught, but he goes along with it. Eventually, after all this pressure, he decides to finally convert. Uh, and he thinks at least, well, all right, I'm going to be a Christian. My voice is fading anyway. I might not have been able to make it as a rhetorician. At least now I can sit back and, and study philosophy. I can study Platonistic philosophy and Christianity. I can live a kind of blissful monastic existence. He goes back home to North Africa, and he's sitting in church one day, sitting in the pews, and uh, the parishioners notice, hey, that's Augustine. He's that really smart, uh, rising Christian star. And they basically mob him and like, physically assault him and force him to become ordained as a priest. It was not his intention to become a priest, but by the end of the day, he was one. And he, he goes along with it. He just goes along with it. And then for the rest of his life, puts his brilliant mind to work at the task of oppressing the free intellect wherever it may be found. Last major fact about Augustine. By the, once he becomes a priest and begins to assume authority within the Catholic hierarchy, you know, he's a bishop, he plays an instrumental role in persecuting and in justifying the persecution of heretics and schismatics, and you can, you can ask me about some of these schisms and heresies if you want to. Some of them are especially revealing, too. And he does this even after he writes in a letter to a colleague saying, I don't think this is actually going to work. We're not actually, you can't actually use force to change someone's religious beliefs. But he's convinced that that doesn't matter as long as they go along mouthing it. So the last question here is, what could possibly motivate all of, this, all of these behavior, all of this behavior? What could, and what could motivate someone to adopt the philosophy that he's now adopted in order to justify it? Well, here's my hypothesis, and you know, take it for what you like, but is it possible that after having lived a life like his, and having a mind like his, he decided at one point, I, I may have betrayed my mind. And on some level, anyone who does that is going to know it, and they are going to feel guilty, and they're going to feel fearful because they've abandoned their only means of survival. And then they're going to be searching for a justification to explain why they did this terrible thing to themselves. There, if you decide that actually it's not even possible to be intellectually independent, why should we bother trying to know things for ourselves if it's impossible? Because after all, we need God. Well, then you can't blame me. You can't blame me for having given up my mind. And when you see other people out there, like these heretics and these schismatics, having the courage to stand up for their convictions in a way that Augustine never did, well, they'll be a terrible reminder of his own vice. He's not going to want to see them. He'll be motivated to justify doing whatever he can to convince them to adopt his faith. Uh, because that then helps him pretend. It helps him also think he has a kind of power. 
This, I think, is how the virtue of pride goes from being a crown of the virtues to the deadliest of sins. It happens when you use a systematic philosophy that's calculated to reach the worst in people by helping them to hide from themselves what is the worst about them. And I'll close by reading to you a passage from Ayn Rand where even though it's 1,500 years later, she more or less calls out people like Augustine for this very kind of motive, but she offers an alternative. She says, it is not any crime you have committed that infects your soul with permanent guilt. It is not any sort of original sin or unknown prenatal deficiency, but the knowledge, in fact, of your basic default of suspending your mind of refusing to think. She goes on. The legend of the Garden of Eden, of some kingdom of perfection, always, is always behind us. The root of that legend exists, not in the past of the race, but in the past of every man. You still retain a sense that somewhere in the starting years of your childhood, before you had learned to submit, to absorb the terror of unreason and to doubt the value of your mind, you had known a radiant state of existence. You had known the independence of a rational consciousness facing an open universe. Those of you who have known a single moment of love for existence and of pride in being its worthy lover, a moment of looking at this and letting your glance be its sanction, have known the state of being a man. I would suggest that even St. Augustine knew moments of pride like this when he was young. The question, of course, was what would he do with them? Would he try to understand them? Would he fight for them? He did not. But let me close by paraphrasing Pericles from the beginning by saying, such are the moments for which we, in the assertion of our resolve not to lose them, should nobly fight. Thank you. Yes. Dr. Bayer, thank you. That was splendid. Um, question for you. Um, what made you choose this subject? Is this part of a larger publication you intend to bring out? Uh, hopefully, yeah. I'm, I'm working on a research project about the religious roots of altruism. Uh, I've already written a number of articles on different aspects of this for New Ideal. Uh, Yaron interviewed me about this uh, last week, I think. And uh, the idea is, I think there are secular people out there. There's an audience of secular people, people who think of themselves as rational, people who think that they've abandoned religion, and yet, as we know from the state of our world, so many of them still hold on to the morality of altruism. Uh, today we talked about humility. I mean, for instance, there's a whole movement out there in favor of humility now. Intellectual humility is one of them. So I want to be able to speak to, the, to this audience and to say, you think you've dropped religion, but actually, your, the morality that you hold on to comes from religion. It comes from people like St. Augustine. And if you, you're serious about being a scientific and rational thinker, you should realize that what you've got here is this artifact of this ancient religion, and you should get rid of it.
All right. Um, um, so my question is, um, as objectives, we all stand uh, for the idea there's an objective reality out there, like regardless of what we perceive. Sorry, say that one more time. Okay, I went by a little fast. As objectivists, we stand for the idea that there's an objective reality out there, regardless of what we perceive or how we yes. see it, right? Uh, but often, what we see uh, in the present, in the real world, uh, is that the virtue of pride often uh, leads to people denying the actual reality, thinking they are living in a prideful fairy tale life. Uh, whereas, on the other hand, in the, the the virtue of humility, as such, teaches us to seek reality admit uh, and learn from mistakes, take responsibility, and probably lead a good life that way. So shouldn't we, as objectivists, try to find a balanced nature of you know, both pride and humility together, rather than go attack humility altogether? OK, interesting question. And that, that actually is on the very topic I just mentioned the previous question. There's a movement of people about today advocating on behalf of intellectual humility for the very reason that you just stated, which is that uh, they think the humble person is, is the one who doesn't uh, pridefully stick to his guns and his conclusions no matter what. He's someone who looks at the evidence and uh, goes according to what it says no matter what, even if it goes against his expectations. And so that is the conventional argument, but I reject it. Uh, and that's because if, if you think about some of the things we talked about at the very top of the lecture, Think about Aristotle's idea of pride, which in essence is, I think, the same as Ayn Rand's. Pride isn't about, I mean, put it in Aristotle's terms, pride isn't about thinking that you're great whether you are or not. It's thinking you're great if you're actually great, and only if you're actually great. And the same thing translates then to epistemic matters. Being proud in the use of your intellect isn't believing whatever you've chosen to believe, regardless of its merits. And it's, the merits are decided by the evidence. It's believing on the basis of the merits only when they really are the merits, only when you really have the evidence. And so my argument is that true pride means excelling in the use of your mind, being uncompromising in your devotion of truth, not accepting any compromise uh, in favor of prejudice or conformity. That's what real pride in the intellect is, and it's not humble. It's not humble because I mean, one of the things you'll learn if you, if, you, if you pay attention enough to the way the real advocates of self-sacrifice and altruism and real humility operate is in the cases where someone has done their very best to collect all the evidence and come to a conclusion, but if it's an unpopular conviction, those people will say, even though the person's acquired all this evidence, they'll say, why are you being so selfish in thinking that you alone can figure out what's true? But sometimes people can figure out what's true all by themselves, even against what the masses say. And that takes pride. All right, thank you. Hi, um, I have a lot of questions and comments and would really love to talk to you about them, but um, do you feel that these criticisms and like other objectivist criticisms hold as much weight for like a non-Augustinian read of Christianity? Um, I understand that like a lot of Christian history is tainted by Augustine, but I also think there are a lot of ways 
to interpret the Bible and Christian values that wouldn't end up at that conclusion and then thus would be more compatible with objectivist ideals? Well, it's certainly true that there are different ways of interpreting Christianity. Uh, I mean, the most obvious example would be something like Aquinas's take on Christianity. Uh, Aquinas is trying to reconcile Aristotle uh, with Christianity. And from that perspective, I would say it's, it's a lot better in, in, in that uh, if you take an evil idea and you try to compromise something, compromise it with something that's actually good, well, you'll water down the evil and you'll make it better. Um, I do think, however, that, that Augustine, and I'll say I'm not, I'm not a scholar of Christianity per se, but I do think that Augustine does a better job capturing the real essence of what Christianity is about than does someone like Aquinas. I mean, Aquinas is better, but that's because he's, he's trying to integrate Christianity with this pagan worldview that, that was developed independently of Christianity and for totally opposite reasons. And there's a lot more that I could say about that. I, you might have questions, but feel free to find me afterwards and we can go into some of the details. Thank you. You briefly mentioned Augustine's obsession with demons, and I'm very curious to know more about that. Yeah, I'll say something really brief. Um, he, I brought them up in the context of his view of Roman religion. What I find interesting here is that you'd think that as a monotheist Christian, when he encounters another religion with what he takes to be false gods, what he would do is say, these, these gods aren't real. Right? Only Yahweh, only Jehovah, only the God of the Bible is real. But then think for a moment about what it would take to actually do that. He'd have to say things like, well, yeah, where do people get the idea for all these different gods? Well, they heard stories, and these stories were told a long time ago, and how can, that, how can any of those stories be trusted? And they contradict each other. And so, uh, don't want to go that far. Because if he starts asking those kind of questions, then of course he has to ask them about his own religion as well. And I think that's part of the reason, a big part of the reason why he doesn't say they don't exist. He just says they're demons. The Roman gods are demons. They're real, but they're, they're trying to fool you into thinking they're gods for their devilish purposes. Uh, a few of them he thinks are made up and were just effigies of men, in fact. But most of them he thinks are demons and are at work in the world doing evil. Uh, and in that respect, is not too different from like the Old Testament, where you see, uh, like in the account of Pharaoh uh, going to Egypt, doing battle with the Egyptian gods. They're real. They're just uh, the bad, the bad demons. And so I, I think it's uh, symbolic of his uh, the same problem we've been talking about is unwillingness to uh, ask too many questions about the assumptions that he's been given by his faith. Hi, uh, my question is about pride as such, uh, contrasting Aristotle and Rand on what they think pride is. For Rand, you said, it kind of comes off more as like this thing you use to get the value of self-esteem. So it's, it seems like more like a tool, something you use to get a thing. But then for Aristotle, you said it, it seems more like this thing you get after you get the self-esteem, like kind of like an emotion. I don't know if you would use those words, but just like a product. And so my question is, I mean, when I think of pride, I always think of it as like 
Like I gave a really great lesson, I'm a teacher, I was so happy with how it went, my students are great. I felt really proud, and to me that feels like an emotion. But, you know, that doesn't seem like what Rand would sign off on, like that's not exactly how she thinks of it. So my question is, is pride just this virtue, kind of like this tool for getting values, or could it also be an emotion? I mean, I think what your question shows is that the, the term is just used for a number of different things. So it, it's ambiguous uh, what someone's using for in any given case. And one thing I can tell you is I, I gave a talk on the whole subject uh, two years ago in Austin at Ocon uh, called That Radiant Selfishness of Soul and talking about Ayn Rand's view of the virtue of pride. And so, yeah, uh, you can use the word pride to just mean a feeling that you're feeling good after you did something you accomplished. She uses it to name a virtue. And uh, all of her virtues are, are actions that you undertake in order to attain values. And for her, the virtue of pride is the action of uh, searching your soul on the premise of knowing that you're the one who has to create your own character. That all of your beliefs and premises and values and emotions are products of choices that you've made, that you make over the course of your life. And you know that who you are is the sum total of that, which means you have to have attention to all of the things, all of the choices that you make, knowing you're going to get this result. That's why it's about seeking moral perfection uh, and desiring the best in all things. And so if you, if you find yourself desiring something you don't really approve of, what can you do to work on that? Um, but there's action there. And then the only difference with Aristotle is Aristotle, just generally his account of virtues is, is their, their states of character that are the products of lots of action. So he's just using virtue in a different way than she is there. But uh, check out that talk for more on Rand's view on, on pride. Salutations. I have a deep, dark concern regarding Augustine's view of mankind as a scourge, a plague, a curse by their inherent nature that there is a phrase that I think really sums that up that I hear quite frequently of, kill them all in, let God sort it out in the end. And my concern is that if people in power have the capacity to do just that with technology, weapons of mass destruction. So how does one address the sort of concerns that if these ideas were made consistent by the wrong people, that it would lead to truly horrible consequences for all of humanity? I know, well, I'm not a positive one. Well, I'm sure what you're asking because th I think that it, it depends on what you mean by these ideas. If, 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 it, if these ideas are the ones that Augustine's using, uh, anybody who uses these ideas, whether they're the right people or the wrong people, is going to cause some kind of destruction. Uh, and what I've argued is that these ideas are designed for destruction, that they're designed to rationalize uh, one's own weaknesses and flaws and to, uh, and to help you hide them from yourself. So I mean, is there something specific you had in mind uh, by these ideas beyond the ones we've been talking about today? I mean in terms of how Augustine in the religious view considers humanity to be such a terrible influence of, upon God's perfect earth and you even see this a bit with the environmentalist movement with the untouched earth fallacies they use. Why have we gotten to a point where we're still able to be very technologically wonderful and alive in that I understand that it's due to reason, but with the people in charge being so irrational, I have my concerns that there will be actual widespread 
destruction because of our capacity and to the extent that, speaking from Atlas Shrugged, that Project X is in hands of the government, how do we address those concerns, both as worries within ourselves and what do we do as people to prevent humanity from being destroyed? But are, are you asking if, uh, are, you, are you basically asking, is there, is there some uh, core truth to what Augustine's getting at in that people, I mean, related to his view of original sin, people have this tendency to do bad things and that's what you're worried about being I'm worried about actuated? people acting upon it. Acting, but what's the it? Upon the idea that people are corrupt and horrible and thus evil and thus worthy of being destroyed. Well, yeah, I'm worried about acting on it too. That's, that's the point of the talk. It's like, I don't think there's a good way to act on that idea. The problem is the idea. Yes, and I'm worried about other people acting on the idea, if that adds any clarification. I mean, that's even worse. I, I... Understandable, thank you very much. Okay, sorry, I mean, we can talk more, because I'm not, I still am not sure if I quite got your question, so I'll try have, more later. We have a question from uh, Kelsey. What is the connection between the heresy of Pelagianism and uh, uh, original sin? Oh, that was the, the question I planted, yeah. Um, so it's interesting because early in his intellectual life, Augustine, for nine years before he was a Christian, he was a member of a sect called Manichaeism. Uh, the Manichaeans, they had a, a strange, very dualistic religion that said there's a battle in the universe between the forces of good and the forces of evil. Uh, each of us has uh, elements of this in our soul. Our body is, is the part of us that's associated with the forces of darkness. And uh, he comes to reject this view. And that's when he, he flirts with Neoplatonism and then Christianity. But as soon as he ab abandons it, he writes various tracts explaining why he thinks the Manichaeans are wrong. One of the reasons he thinks they're wrong is because they're deterministic. He thinks they're trying to uh, blame all the evil things they do on their wicked bodies. And so he writes one of his dialogues explaining why he thinks we have free will and why the Manichaeans are wrong. So at that point in his life, he's, he sounds very pro-free will because he's rejecting the Manichaeans. But then later in his career, uh, a, there's a new heresy that pops up called Pelagianism. Pelagius was a British monk who thought that moral perfection was possible, who thought that all we needed to do was to take Christ as our savior and use him as a model, and he was perfect, there's no reason we can't be like him. Now, Pelagius' idea of moral perfection was asceticism and, and you know, complete renunciation and sacrifice, but he thought that that was possible because God creates us in our image, God has free will, and so do we. Well, Augustine thought about this and realized and I can, I can read you um, the passage, one of the key passages where he takes this down. Uh, he's, he's worried about the fact that, look, all good things are supposed to come from God. And if you think that you can make all the right choices all by yourself, uh, that means there's one thing that didn't come from God. And that, first of all, undercuts God and it elevates you to the power of kind of being like God. 
which is, of course, the sin of pride. He says about Pelagius, it is to be feared lest all these and similar testimonies of Holy Scripture and the maintenance of free will be understood in such a way as to leave no room for God's assistance and grace in leading a godly life to which the eternal reward is due. And lest poor, wretched man, when he leads a good life and performs good works, or rather thinks he leads a good life and performs good works, should dare to glory in himself and not in the Lord, and to put his hope of righteous living in himself alone, of this character is the Pelagian heresy. That's in his uh, book of Grace and Free Will. And so it's in rejecting Pelagianism that he then fully explicitly formulates the doctrine of original sin and says, look, we can never completely be morally perfect because there's just this inherent sinfulness that's just programmed into our DNA, our, our concupiscence is what he calls it. And the result of that is the idea that we can never really fully control our will. Sometimes we just have to sin. Unless God's grace saves us, we are determined to sin. And so you wonder, how does he reconcile this with his previous views about, about free will that he offers against the Manichaeans? And more or less, the answer to that question is he adopts a kind of compatibilism. Compatibilism, some of you know, is the view that says you have free will, but you're also determined. And that's not a contradiction because you can give a really fancy definition of free will where there isn't that, def isn't that contradiction. But he's very explicit about it. Like he says... In another part of that same book, God works in the hearts of men to incline their wills wherever he wills, whether to good deeds according to his mercy or to evil after their own deserts. But it's, so think of um, Pharaoh's heart hardening after Moses says uh, he's going to try to escape from Egypt. Uh, God hardens Pharaoh's heart and then punishes him for the things that he does because of it. How, how fair is that? That's not really free will. So think about this whenever you hear someone saying that religion and Christianity, but religion generally, has room for free will. They have room for the language of free will, but they, they redefine that language to make it consistent with this divine uh, determinism, which is, of course, where predestinationism comes from. And so there's no real free will there. That's one of the other reasons why you can't do any of these things on your own, why you depend on God's grace, because you just don't have free will. Ben, can you talk about how your talk is being played out in real world today, uh, namely last month, the Pride Month, uh, LGBTQ Pride, and then the reaction to it? Um, and just I want to get your thoughts on my thought process on this. So I see the Pride Month in a certain respect as, uh, you know, we'll just put it in the category of homosexuals. It's a reaction to the, basically the Christian idea that homosexuality is a sin. And they're saying we have pride not in that it's a virtue, an achievement that I'm gay, but that I'm not ashamed of being gay and I'm defiant. Um, I'm defying you. And then just the reaction that we've gotten the past month from like Charlie Kirk on Twitter. Uh, you know, pride is a sin, and Jordan Peterson, pride became before, came before the fall, and, and um, what's the app? Uh, uh, starts with a P, I can't think of it, but uh, basically they're promoting Humility Month. Uh, not Prager, I can't think of what it's called, but it's an app that was in response to, you know, Twitter. Yeah, I mean, I think you've, you've already 
analyzed it pretty well yourself. And I think, I think both of those factors are at work. I think, you know, at best, like the most innocent gloss that I can give to the idea of LGBTQ pride is what you said, that it's they're being shamed for irrational religious reasons and, and pride is just the word they've chosen to say we're not ashamed and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, it might not be the best word choice given the fact that we need this word for something else, mm -hmm. um, but that's at best. You know, at worst, it's not just LGBTQ, it's, it's racial pride, it's, it's sexual pride. Uh, the word pride has been appropriated by all kinds of forms of collectivism to emphasize that where you can, that in fact, the individual can't take credit for who they are. They're just born that way. Uh, they need to cling to and identify with a group for whatever kind of pseudo self-esteem that they have. So, uh, you know, if the collectivism weren't in the picture, I wouldn't complain that much about people using pride for that. But since it is, I'm going to be a little less uh, tolerant. Thanks. Thank you. So you said during the lecture that the theories of John Rawls relate somewhat to the thought of um, uh, uh, You're talking about the fall of Rome or the sack of Rome? I mean, you said something that John Rawls relates to the, what you were talking about? Oh, Rawls. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, okay, uh, real quick on this. In the course of doing research for this talk, I, I discovered that uh, John Rawls, who's the, the very influential egalitarian liberal philosopher of the, of the 20th century, whose famous theory of justice uh, has influenced all kinds of policymakers on the left in order to justify the welfare state. Um, before he was a philosopher, before he went to graduate school for philosophy, um, he went to, uh, he was thinking about entering the seminary as an Anglican minister. He went to Princeton and he wrote an undergraduate thesis what do you suppose the subject of his thesis was? Why Pelagianism is a heresy. Why pride is a sin. And I'll just read for you, um, I think, the, the most interesting passage that I found, because I read his thesis. I was actually thinking about opening the talk this way and saying, who do you suppose wrote this? The human person, once perceiving that the revelation of the word is a condemnation of the self, casts away all thoughts of his own merit. He knows that ultimately all good things are gifts of God. Never again can he hope to boast of his own good deeds, of his skill, of his prowess, for he knows that they are gifts. Thus it is that we love because he loved us first. All goodness, all kindness, all righteousness are given by God. Even when we have dessert, it is because he first gives it to us. But further, should that dessert be lost, he still comes to us. Achieving good deeds as merits serves only the demon of spiritual pride. There is no merit for God. So the first thing to say about this is that it's straight out of Augustine. Um, and literally, like he's a student of Augustine at this point in his life. That's why he's on about Pelagianism. But the second thing is, if you know the theory of justice... You know, like this is the same argument that he makes there, except it's in secularized terms. He says, you can never uh, claim that you deserve to keep the fruits of your labor because you may think you had a work ethic, that you worked really hard to get it, but actually your work ethic is just a product of your character. Your character wasn't up to use. Your society and your parents gave it to you. They were gifts by the grace of society. Therefore, there's no desert in your efforts. So the point is there's a straight line going from this Augustinian theory of merit to something like Rawls' egalitarianism. 
And there was a recent book that came out by Eric Nelson called The Theology of Liberalism, which covers some of these connections and roles, but also looks at the broader history of how liberalism devolved into egalitarianism and how it was, uh, whenever there was Augustinian ideas in play, there was a decline of liberalism, liberalism in the classical sense. Uh, whenever Pelagian ideas came into the mix of abandoning the idea of original sin, you know, Locke was a Pelagian, for instance, and that had a, a kind of positive effect. Thank you. And I guess we're out of time, so uh, I can, you guys can find me later and ask me more questions. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Remember to subscribe wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.